Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Steven. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're so pleased to welcome Greg Hitzroth. Greg is an aquatic invasive species specialist with the Illinois Indiana Sea Grant and Illinois Natural History Survey. So welcome and thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we appreciate you taking the time and sitting down chatting to us with about aquatic invasive species. But now that I found out you're also, um, you're at the Illinois Natural History Survey. I want to ask, so do you know why Illinois has an S at the end of it? No, I do not. <laughs> not a clue. Expected, was it? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm no, that's a, no, yeah, no, that's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> that's really good. Well, okay, we'll jump to the aquatic invasive species then. How's that? <laughs> That's that's more my forte. <laughs> Maybe that's political history. I'm not sure where that first question went. But right, so explain. <laughs> I'm already throwing you off completely. Um, explain really what and how aquatic invasive species. Um, so it's always good to define what we mean by invasive because a lot of people have different thoughts about what invasive means. Um, so we adopt the definition that um, there are species that have been moved by people to areas where they haven't been before. So they're not native to these regions. Um, and once in these areas, they actually can cause problems for the environment. Um, so they cause problems with food chains or food webs um, uh, impacting sensitive species that are native, um, stuff like that. But also um, they can impact the economy of regions. So if there's a, a species that's impacting things like voter access to rivers or lakes, uh, that might actually impact um, how much people recreate on those bodies of water. Um, but it can also impact the health of people, livestock or wildlife. So sometimes there are viruses or bacteria or even uh, they play a role in how uh, some viruses or bacteria are spread. For example, flowing water um, isn't really great for mosquito habitat, but if you have a lot of weeds, a lot of aquatic invasive weeds, sometimes we see changes in water flow, which makes good water uh, habitat for mosquitoes, and then mosquitoes are a vector of, or they transmit diseases to people or livestock. And so um, really, when we talk about invasive species, that's really what we're saying is that these are things that have been introduced by people through different ways, then actually negatively impact the environment, uh, the economy, or the health of people or animals. So, now it's it, I didn't expect you um, to throw in by people part. Um, it can, is it possible <laughs> to be an invasive species, species, and yet people didn't introduce it? Ye, for the most part, um, we would say that kind of falls under natural distribution then, um, especially with climate change, it gets a little bit tricky when you have species migrating to areas where they haven't been or able to sur survive previously.
But for the most part, really what we look at is um, how people move things or like how um, people have aided the transportation of species. And so um, sometimes people talk about humans being like the worst invasive species. And I would counter with that saying that by definition, we are moving species around and making them invasive. And so we're not necessarily invasive ourselves, but we are how invasive species happen. So. Oh, nice. I've not heard it. I've not heard it put that way. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. And so <clears throat> what, because um, it's Illinois, so you're the Midwest. What are some of the major species that you're looking at in aquatic wise in the Midwest? And when um, I think of aquatic species, I'm thinking of, you know, like Asian carp, you know, in, or something like that. But uh, you're thinking of a lot larger picture than just like a certain fish, aren't you? Yeah, so um, a lot of my work is, so I'm an outreach specialist. Um, I don't go in and manage invasive species myself, but what I do is I work with people to look at how they're spreading things around and then look at how education and outreach can inform um, certain audiences who are using aquatic organisms or interact with aquatic organisms to prevent their spread or introduction to areas. So um, one of the things we look at are aquariums. Aquariums is a way in which uh, unique or interesting aquatic organisms are brought into the United States or even to the Midwest. And we look at how those species of aquarium species go from being in aquariums to actually being in our public waterways. Um, and so a lot of it is uh, either accidentally through aquaculture escape, so when they're being raised, uh, or intentionally dumping from hobbyists who are either tired of the organism, don't know how to care for the organism, um, don't really know what to do, and so they choose to release it thinking that it will benefit the organism. But what it ends up doing is either harming the organism or harming the ecosystem in which they're released into. So we work with, say, aquarium hobbyists, um, and like retailers of aquariums to kind of look at um, how we can best uh, prevent new introductions. So helping people to make wise decisions when they're buying aquariums or aquarium species, um, talking about which species are likely to be invasive um, or which ones we know to be invasive through the aquarium trade. So um, there's some things like Hydrilla varicellata, which is um, sometimes called Brazilian waterweed or uh, was been sold for an, as a nacris for a long time. Oh. Um, that was um, a really problematic species in Florida. Uh, and we're starting to see populations in Illinois and Indiana. Um, and that's very costly to remove or control. Um, I think uh, I heard that Indiana spent up towards $10 million controlling one lake full of hydrilla. And so this is a species that's very, um, if you look at like a fake aquarium plant, like it's like the typical aquarium species really, but it looks just like any other like aquarium plant, um, but it's really brittle. So you can't really pull it out from the water. Um, it actually has turions, which is like a potato, like it's like a aquarium plant potato that sits in the sediment and it can regrow from that. But also, since it's so um, brittle, uh, trying to rip it up, um, what I'm trying to say is that 
um, it can actually regrow from little pieces, like a little fragment of the plant itself. So when you're ripping it up, you can get a handful of it. If you throw that aside, you can actually grow a whole other plant from that. And so it's really easy to reproduce. It's really hard to remove. Um, and so really most of the options are like lots of years of herbicide. Um, there's lots of other control options, but like they're all very costly and time consuming. Mm -hmm. So, um, <clears throat> Well, not to mention herbicide, but, uh, if it's if it's aquatic, that's probably not something we'd love to be doing with the water, so. Yeah, um, for the most part, they are EPA approved. And so okay. there are guidelines that make them safe for use. Um, I think often they are, they get the boogeyman treatment often because herbicides and pesticides, um, but I think for the most part, um, as long as people are filing the guidelines set up by EPA, that they're pretty pretty safe. Um, and there's a whole bunch of them. And again, that's not really my my strong suit, so I don't like myself in trouble to talk about too much of herbicides at the moment. But um, there are a lot of uh, it's highly regulated, um, especially around water sources. Um, so you have to have lots of permits if you're applying herbicide. Um, in riparian areas or waterway areas too. So it's highly regulated, so. And so uh, since we're on the aquarium side of things, if I'm going to get an aquarium, what's the best, I mean, is it still okay just to go to any plant, any, any store to get those cool plants for fish and get any fish? Um, is it still okay to do that? I mean, is it gonna hurt anything in my aquarium? Yeah, so for the most part, um, so it depends on your state and it depends on the species. Some things are hard to regulate. So you can buy things that are known to be invasive. Um, so really um, what we try to steer people away from is if you know something is slightly problematic, like definitely don't buy that. Um, choose something else, maybe it'd be similar. Um, uh, we have some publications that try to get people to choose some native or non-invasive species for um, aquariums. But if you can obtain it legally, there's nothing we can really do to stop you from doing that. But really what we highly recommend is come up with a plan for how to care for it. A really good planning is important for aquarium hobbyists. Um, so you can't read an aquarium book without the first couple pages telling you that it's a complicated thing. If you want things to survive, you have to do a lot of planning. And part of that planning is understanding the organisms that you're bringing into your aquarium to make sure that they are um, uh, they work well with what you have. Like, make sure that your water hardness is correct, that like the fish are going to get along together, um, and make sure that you're enjoying your hobby too. So if you enjoy it and have it in your aquarium, you're going to keep it in your aquarium. If you aren't doing a good job with it, more people are likely to get rid of it. And um, if you come to that point, um, really, we recommend um, if it's a plant, like taking it and putting it in the trash, just in a like a plastic bag in the trash is the best way to dispose of it. Um, getting rid of water, we don't recommend dumping it into storm drains ever because often storm drains go untreated to other areas and um, water can carry eggs or plant fragments like hydrilla fragments, Ooh. stuff like that. Um, and if you have an animal, we highly recommend working either with uh, your, who you bought it from to return it. Um, some uh, smaller retailers will actually take back pets that you're no longer uh, able to care for. 
Um, but also, if that's not an option, to try to find a new home for it through other means. Uh, we have a network of organizations that take back pets through Illinois and Indiana on our website, um, takeaim.org, or through our uh, Release Zero um, campaign website, releasezero.org. Um, and so these are just some resources that we try to provide people as an alternative to releasing things. So really, in theory, your aquarium is a closed system. What you put in it should stay in it unless you move it out. Um, and so really, that is the general advice we give people. Um, so, but there's some things I drill out which are illegal in Illinois and Indiana. Um, they should not be able to get um, because they are very detrimental um, to the environment um, and humans. So some things you shouldn't put in your aquarium just because you shouldn't transport them or propagate them, which means like duplicating them or anything like that. So, but yeah. And uh, like I say, aquariums are one thing, and I would not have thought about that. I, I didn't think we'd go to aquariums, and so that surprised me a little bit. But what are some <laughs> other ways that we, um, which is only fair, because I threw out the why is the S in Illinois? <laughs> you you got to throw some things back. <laughs> you got to do something to surprise me. But uh, what are some other ways besides aquarium hobby? It, it's I I mean, say I've had aquariums, several of them through the years and stuff, and. Um, mm -hmm. I know that uh, I've, I've had luck with some and not so luck with others, but obviously I got rid of them and then got into it again later since I've had several. But uh, so that's that is a hobby that I've done myself. And uh, but so what are some other activities that people do that might cause aquatic invasive species in the areas? Yeah, so um, when we look at invasive species, we really um, this is where a slide would be great, but I'm just going to describe what this is. So it's called the invasive species curve. And so there is essentially like a few steps uh, for species to become invasive. I mentioned the first step is people introducing it. So the transportation to an area where it hasn't been before. Either it's intentionally like with aquariums where you're like you're trying to buy something novel or it could be something accidental. So large cargo ships um, have taken up a bunch of water into their ballast to balance heavy cargo, um, say in Eastern Europe, and transport that water to the Great Lakes. And this has happened multiple times and releasing that water with the cargo to rebalance the ship. Um, so that's called ballast water discharge. And that has introduced a whole bunch of things into the Great Lakes, including zebra mussels and quagga mussels, uh, round goby, um, potentially Eurasian water milfoil. Um, so a lot of species that we are are well known to be um, problematic. So that's another way in which they're introduced. But we also look at um, the spread. So it's once they're introduced in an environment, they have to be able to survive and reproduce and like stay in that area. So if you have a bunch of tropical fish from your aquarium and you release them into Lake Michigan, for the most part, many of them won't survive because they're tropical. I mean, that will change over time with climate change, um, and we don't recommend doing that at all. Um, but for example, um, like F, like tropical cichlids like are likely not to survive in the Great Lakes. And so they have to be able to establish, and once they've established, spread to new areas and then actually have impacts. So really, the introduction part is interesting for aquariums because aquariums are a way of introducing novel species. 
But once something's already introduced and established, we start thinking about how people are spreading them around to new areas. So boats or boaters or anglers or people who are actually recreating on the water where they are uh, established. Um, so accidentally picking them up on your gear uh, or their larvae or in the mud, um, on your gear of your boat or your, uh, your waders or even in your bait buckets and taking those from that location where they're infested already to a new location that's uninfested and either intentionally releasing them or accidentally releasing them. So you can think about not washing your boat. For example, we tell people to wash their boat or clean their boat. Um, specifically, we tell them to remove drain and dry. So that's removing plants and mud from your boats and your equipment, uh, drain all water from your gear, including your, um, your bilge, um, and then dry everything thoroughly with a towel or let it dry for five days. So essentially, um, you can pick up a plant fragment like hydrilla, like I mentioned before, if it's on your prop and you put it into a new location, you're spreading that hydrilla plant to a new location. If you have water in an, uh, on your boat or in your boat um, in an area that has zebra mussels or quagga mussels, there are these little tiny mussels um, that produce many, many offspring um, and they're able to spread um, in water essentially. Um, so their larvae are able to uh, suspend themselves in water. And you put a bunch of water in your boat with uh, zebra mussel larvae and you put them into new locations and then you have a new population of zebra mussels or quagga mussels. And so draining your boat prevents that, but really the dry part too, um, because zebra mussel, um, they're called belligers. It's just like essentially larvae. Um, they uh, are able to survive out of water for about five days. And so wiping down your boat helps to mechanically remove them a little bit, but really letting them dry for five days is like, will kill them and prevent, your, uh, yeah. prevent you from spreading them to new locations. So that's another way. Um, and really um, anytime you buy any kind of aquatic organism, whether or not it's like live bait, or if you're a gardener that likes water lilies, stuff like that, really just think about um, how are you using that and how you're transporting it and where is it going and what's the end use. So for live bait, often um, when you hook it, like it doesn't survive that very easily. And, um, but like what people will do is they'll have some leftover bait at the end of the day and like think they're feeding um, the sport fish they didn't want to catch and dump that bait. And that is another way in which a lot of organisms organisms have been transported to areas. Oh. Um, and I mentioned like cross ocean um, changes, right? So like uh, cross ocean uh, species being brought to the US, but sometimes it's really pretty local. Like species can be transported from very local endemic areas um, or even like certain river basins. So in Northern Indiana, rusty crayfish uh, is a really common species. It's all over the place. Outside of essentially the Ohio River Basin, it's a very invasive crayfish. So here in Illinois, it's prohibited, but in Indiana, it's a native species. And so even just uh, small geographic changes are important. So if you're out catching crayfish for bait or whatever purpose uh, you want to use them for, and you take them to a new location where you didn't catch them, that is also transporting it to a new location. So when I say instead of being transported, it can be like a lake, it could be a river, it could be like the creek, it could be a very small geographic area. So it's not just 
across continents or um, yeah. between continents. When you when you were mentioning using live bait, I hadn't thought of that either. But that that makes a lot of sense to be mindful of that. But then you're speaking about maybe transporting or not transporting, especially if you're you know like you said fishing or, or trying to catch crayfish for live bait. Do you do is any of this enforced by like is, does law enforcement involved with any of this? You know, moving one way or the other, like with the DNR or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um... I'm a little bit more familiar with Illinois laws, um, but they're definitely um, transporting certain species from one location to the next is typically frowned upon. Um, partially, uh, it's not always just the bait species itself, but like sometimes the water they transport. So some viruses can survive in water and transport from one location to the next. So really, for the most part, um, we highly recommend if you're wild catching bait to not take it to new locations, um, just to make sure that you're not breaking any laws or transporting things you shouldn't be transporting. Um, and that's just the general good rule of thumb for uh, not um, spreading around invasive species, even, and even unintentionally. So even if you don't always, uh, if you think you know what you have, sometimes you don't always know what you have, depending on like lookalikes and life stages. Um, so it's best to just not move anything aquatic. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're buying things from bait shops, like obviously you can't just like fish out of bait shop. So really that's why we recommend um, when that, when you're done with your bait at the end of the day, not releasing it, but dumping it um, into the trash essentially. So. Okay. Well, the, the drying, when you got to the dry part uh, about remove, drain, and then dry, um, that's something I had not, I, I guess I had not really thought of. But uh, I know it's like my friends have kayaks and we talked about maybe taking some time off in the summer and we see how many different uh, streams we could kayak. And so mm -hmm. I, I guess uh, it's might be important at that point to, to make sure we're drying them off if we're doing them consecutive days and, and, and make sure that there's there's not something on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, take as much water as you can, um, bring a towel with you and try to dry off your boat as much as you can. Um, again, the five days, it's useful, you know, if you have a boat and you put it like in your driveway for five days, like yeah. between weekends, like that's really useful. But really, um, we try to be practical with our advice and we try to tell people like good, better, best. Um, so uh, the baseline is to try to dry as much as you can uh, between rivers. So if you're going to two rivers in one day, really try to squeegee out as much water from inside your canoe or your kayak as possible. Um, remove any mud or plants that you may have picked up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's usually pretty good. So yeah, I think those are things that we don't think of a lot. I mean, we're thinking, well, I'm not, I didn't pick up any fish or anything. So, you know, I didn't transport, but you don't think about how small some of these, there are stages in these organisms where they're very, very small. Yeah, and there's a lot of species that you might not really realize you're picking up, like in mud, like like New Zealand mud snails, this tiny little snail, like it looks, oh, it's almost like the size of a pinhead, like uh, it's really easy to transport, um, especially like on the bottoms of your waders and stuff, so if you know you're in an area that has New Zealand mud snails, you gotta be very careful with that stuff, so, yeah. Oh, and, and that would be 
something to think about even like I said at the bottom of your waders or and stuff if you're going fishing in from several places i know i have before I, well i never catch anything i suck at it but you know <laughs> i've uh, i've went with people and we went to a couple of different lakes in one day and things like that and did not even think about uh, the possibility of contaminating another water body yeah 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 that's why we uh that's why we do the work that we do we try to remind people to Remove drain drive whenever we can. I feel like a broken record some days, but it's very important <laughs> and it's very simple. It's well, like brushing it, your teeth. <laughs> it's the first I've heard it. So you've reached a note. Okay. <laughs> One more person. <laughs> what, are, what are the most um, popular, doesn't feel like the right word, but I'm going to use it. What are the most popular ways that um, people do move? species from one to the next or is there the most popular ways that it happens yeah so sometimes it's hard because um because some plants and animals are used for multiple purposes so it's sometimes hard to know um red swamp crayfish is one that i think about a lot recently so this is if you ever eat crayfish in louisiana or eat crayfish etouffee or have a crayfish boil it's usually red swamp crayfish so in the Midwest alone, there are 37 different species of crayfish. Oh. Um, red swamp crayfish is actually native to Illinois, but just the very southern tip in the cedar bog. Um, but up in the Great Lakes area, so up in the Collar counties, like it's very invasive. Uh, Michigan's has, I think, probably about eight different populations now. Um, we have some in the Chicago River. Uh, there are some found just outside of Milwaukee. Um, the population outside of Milwaukee was, uh, I think a million dollars to control. They essentially turn a couple of retention ponds into parking lots to try to control them. Oh, wow. Um, and so there's some ways in which these species are being transported. So, um, live food, like I mentioned, like crayfish etouffee, but they're also using aquariums and like people sometimes use them as bait too. So really sometimes people try to use what's cheapest available bait and sometimes live food is what they go to. And so it depends on the species. So in the case of red swamp crayfish, like um, it's hard to say like what's the most likely way that something's been transported, but there's this thing that we call propagule pressure. So if you think about it, like if you throw one crayfish into the Great Lakes, like are you going to see like 100 crayfish in a day or two days, like a week, like you're going to see them in like 10 years. Um, but if you throw, I don't know, 50,000 red swamp crayfish in Lake Michigan, like you're going to see a much faster impact, essentially. Mm -hmm. So when we think about how things are being transported, we sometimes think about quantities, too. So like a five pound bag of red swamp crayfish is likely to be more impactful than like one red swamp crayfish. And so when you talk about what's the most likely method, like we have to think about that as well, like quantity wise. Um, hydrilla is a really good example. Like one plant could actually mean a hundred plants depending on how it's broken up. Um, and so on a boat, a hydrilla is um, our biggest concern. So on recreational equipment for hydrilla. It's highly regulated. Um, most states have prohibited it. It's been prohibited at the federal level as well. Um, and so it's a noxious weed. Um, so it's one of those 
plants were like, in theory, you shouldn't be able to get it legally, but you know, it still exists out there. Um, and so it really depends on the organism, I would say. Um, is that the same? But, the, um, what's the name of it? <clears throat> Anacris? Anacris? Is that the same as Anacris? Because mm -hmm. I, I remember it's yeah, I think years I'm, ago, we used to use that for eco columns. Yeah, and I, I think I misspoke earlier when I called Hydrilla anacris. Um, that's actually a different species um, that is, yeah, so sometimes the common names throw me a little bit. Um, but so anacris is um, Elodia, um, oh, Ergia densa is the scientific name. Um, so anacris was the old genus, um, and then they changed it to Ergia. Um, and so it's often sold as Ergia hydrilla. Um, I'm blanking on the common name. I just have been calling it hydrilla for so long, but they look very similar. They're actually very hard to tell apart. Um, so you can tell. Um, I might get myself into some trouble here because it's been a while since I've looked at this, but one has active, teeth, uh, teeth on the leaves. You didn't say it was. Mm, I'm active. sorry. You said oftentimes it was sold as an actress. And so what you said would be totally accurate. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it looks just like it pretty much. I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people to tell the difference. Um, and so, so you start saying, um, Anacris is also, I'm sorry. What? No, no. I was, I was saying you started to say before I interrupted, you think one of the difference might be the teeth on the leaves you said, so the more jagged leaf. Is that what mm -hmm. it is? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So he's, there's some subtle differences, like the number of leaflets per, um, Whirl, which is a term for like when you look at the stem, like how many leaves around the stem it is. Um, but also when you look at the sides of the leaf, like whether or not it looks like it has little like jagged teeth on the edges. So, and I'm switching which one is which at this moment in my brain. So I'm not going to say which one's which, but <laughs> we have a great publication. <laughs> I haven't actually like physically held in my hand in a couple of years because of COVID. So it's been a minute. <laughs> So. Well, definitely, if you have, and you had mentioned earlier that you have some publications that people choose, especially if they're, um, you know, stocking an aquarium or wanting to get into that hobby that you have. So we would be happy to link up with any um, publications if, if they're available digitally to point people in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, I'll happily send you some links um, after we're done with the, this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have um, a few campaigns that we've run over the years. One's called Be a Hero, Release Zero, which uh, again, like tries to get people to dispose of things properly. Um, so that's a campaign that was adopted by the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Um, and that's something that we developed in partnership with Illinois DNR. Um, we also worked with uh, researchers at Notre Dame and Loyola in Chicago um, to look at what's called risk assessments. So this is looking at biological characteristics of organisms that are likely to be invasive. So things like rates of reproduction, like I mentioned before, like the number of individuals is important for establishment. Um, uh, whether or not they eat at the top of the food web or like lower in the food web, like how big they get, um, stuff like that. So these biological characteristics sometimes point to whether or not they're likely to be invasive. Um, and they also look at whether or not um, it's an appropriate climate for some species that might be introduced to survive. Like I mentioned, like tropical cichlids may not survive in the Great Lakes, so they might be considered low risk. 
And so what we did is we worked with them to look at high risk, low risk species and essentially say that these low risk species, even if they do make their way out, are unlikely to cause problems. And so we created a couple of publications looking at these things are high risk and we know they're in trade. Um, some are regulated, some are not, but we really would like people to try to avoid them and choose native or low risk species instead. And so those are the kind of publications that we create. So. No, that's awesome. I'm glad we'll be able to link to that, especially since I'm trying to talk my my wife into letting us have a water garden. I want to do it. Oh, more. nice. <laughs> and so I'll have to look for those to make sure that I'm picking the the, the right uh, species to put in there myself. Yeah, 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 definitely. So definitely want right to do those That's going to be a popular <laughs> thing for people. You know, it's because springs around the corner. So I'm guessing it's kind of when a lot of people probably start setting those up yeah yeah i know i'm getting the, the gardening itch already and it's only january so <laughs> so i like planning mine out i like planning everything out my wife just rolls her eyes and lets me ramble on that's perfect <laughs> so what are you doing for on the um so i like our our both of these responsibilities, do they fall under both of your positions then? Because with the, what was the other one? The Natural uh, History Society or survey, mm -hmm. Natural History Survey. Mm -hmm. um, do you have different responsibilities under there that you're looking at or, or do they overlap? Uh, it's a lot of overlap. So um, my position is grant funded. Um, so I have to go out and um, pull in money to do the work that I do. Um, and so whoever wants to give me money to do the work, well, as long as it's in line with the missions of Illinois and Sea Grant and Illinois Natural History Survey, it serves us very well. Um, and so I get a lot of uh, leeway, I guess, in the work that I get to do um, for that purpose. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let me throw a political question at you then. Um, so because it's I, I've worked at a university for 20 years so <laughs> you hear stuff right and I hear people talk mm -hmm. about a lot of things and especially if, if something's like a grant based, based position uh, it, it, and you alluded to the answer already so this is a safe political question um, <laughs> uh, I'm not going back to the S in Illinois or anything but uh, <laughs> the uh, I have to look that up now like I, <laughs> I, I, I need to know <laughs> <laughs> By having a position that is grant-based, how influenced are you mm -hmm. by the funding that comes in? If I'm a, if I was a, it's someone who does funding, but okay, I want to make sure you guys learn invasive species, but I'm really concerned about this. This is what I want you looking mm -hmm. at. Are you, did, do you have to make sure you're mainly just looking into that? And does it ever, is it ever kind of like, I want to say questionable uh, as far as the, okay, we're really giving too much attention to one thing, but the money's there. So we have to do it. Yeah. I mean, so objectively science should be objective, right? So all science like should just be like you follow what's important. And that is, that is politics too. Like it's hard to say that there's no politics in science. Um, so the things that people care about for whichever reason, um, like sometimes 
do get more attention. I think there's a lot of people who are aware of this effect and they really try to balance it out. So you mentioned um, invasive carp before, or Asian carp. Um, and so that's one of the concerns in the Great Lakes states too, is that there's a lot of emphasis on Asian carp and like they are very important and like they are um, very problematic and there's a lot of concern around them as there should be, but there's a lot of other organisms. Um, in the Great Lakes alone, there have been 187 different species that have been introduced and established in the Great Lakes, and Asian carp um, isn't in the Great Lakes yet, but like um, invasive carp would be four different species. So 187 already versus four, right? So um, technically, I guess grass carp are in the, the Great Lakes, so like one invasive carp is in the Great Lakes. But trying to balance out a invasive carp with all the other species is uh, something that people actively work to do. So look at how money is being spent in the Great Lakes and which species they're being spent on and try to make sure that it's equitable to some degree. Um, I mean, some of it's a little bit different, like um, red swamp crayfish, like it's of concern, but like, is it a big of concern as uh, Asian carp or invasive carp? Maybe, maybe not. It really depends on who you're asking. But like, there are a lot of people who are looking at that to make sure that red swamp crayfish are still being looked at and not just all Asian carp all the time or invasive carp all the time. I'm trying to use invasive carp. It's a recent um, DEI initiative to kind of make it um, uh, more accessible. So, um, so get away from Asian and try to get into say invasive. It's a challenge i've been doing this for about nine years and like just recently trying to like make that change into invasive carp but um i think it's worth doing too it's just a little side note but well and that makes sense um, too just speaking about the other that you would have some checks and balance so yeah maybe you do start looking at whatever species you might be researching with it being invasive but that, that you might have other groups that would be hey oh, this is great but we want to make sure we're also keeping an eye on some other things too. So I think that's good to point out. Yeah, and there's um, some colleagues at the Nature Conservancy in Northern Indiana, um, Lindsay Chatterton, and um, also a colleague at the Great Lakes Commission, um, Ceci Weidberg. They did an interesting study looking at like how the money is being spent um, through there's this really great program. Um, it's a bipartisan program. So speaking of politics, it's really uh, well liked by both sides of the aisle. That's called the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. Um, it's been, essentially it's been my, how I've been funded for the last 10 years to do this work. Um, and so it's um, uh, the aim, and I'm probably gonna butcher that in a great mission statement, um, but I'm gonna paraphrase it, but essentially it's essentially to um, enhance the Great Lakes through um, ecological stewardship, um, but also like economic development. So it's a nice way of looking at how the Great Lakes play into the environment of the communities, but also um, the um, economies of those communities as well. Um, so like ecotourism is very important. Um, and we're starting to see a lot of that um, along the lake shores and the rivers in the area that are being benefited by this program. And so, um, but the study essentially looked at like how this money is being spent and like looking at um, just making sure that like there's a wide net being cast of uh, concern. So, not just focusing on one species per se. Yeah. So. Well, perfect. Good. Good. 
is it you don't know when you hear the campaigns is it because it's it's a high risk or is it because there is someone with a deep pocket who cares about that one thing and so you wonder you wonder when you hear yeah about it. yeah and that's why we we really focus on what we call pathway of introduction so like aquariums and boaters and anglers like looking at how people are spreading like all species around so because Honestly, 187 species is a lot to put on a poster. Um, so we're not going to tell people to look out for 187 different species. Like, I can barely like keep three in my mind at the same time. So, um, so really, we look at like how people are doing things and like working with those groups to make sure that those groups are not transporting anything. So when we have a campaign, we really try to make sure that it's as um, effective and as inclusive as possible. So make sure we cast a wide net. So boaters can transport a lot of things around, not just Asian carp, so. Well, it's, I guess that's one thing I always ask is, but what can I do? You know, especially we're talking about like climate stuff, like it's, everything seems so big. And it's like, I, I can't fix all the invasive species. I was like, you know, what can I do? And I love the fact that you've done such a good job. It, 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 every Everything you said was things that we can do. I mean, that's a big thing we talked about. I was nervous at first because you're like, oh, the boat ballast water. I'm like, well, I can't do anything about that. You know, I don't have one of these big ships. <laughs> you know? But then you start jumping into things mm -hmm. that we can do as people. And uh, that's what I love. And that's what I appreciate so much. Uh, we can tell you don't you do some outreach because you went in right into the what do you do? <laughs> what can you do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Staying on point. <laughs> yep. And that's what yeah. that's what we need to know. That's what we as in just the people, the, the, the average Steve's uh, need to know. We need to know what is it out there that we can do. And so I, I like that you went pretty much everything I could think of that I would do in the water. I think you you talked about it. So it's, you know, it's I, I know my buddy with the kayaks, the, the ones that do kayaking. I want to make sure I want to say, hey, do you know, do you know what you're supposed to do? Uh, it was she probably does. He's, he's he's even quicker than I am with this type of thing. But uh, hope I'll cut that out. Yeah. So I said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I highly recommend um, learning as much as you can. But like, I think it's important to like talk to people about it too. So like, talk to your fishing buddies about like cleaning their gear. Like it's important to have a community of people that are concerned about it, not just a sign by like a boat ramp or like me handing you a brochure. It's important for people in the community to want to do this as well. Like we work with people who reach out to work with their lake uh, management associations. So like their homeowners associations or like organizations like the Friends of Lake Catherine, like up in Northern Illinois who wanna take the time to put up signs and like do outreach themselves. So we try often to teach teacher too. So we try to take educational materials and give them to people who will actually give them out to other people as well. So we always try to emphasize the, the passing of information is as important as creating information. So. Absolutely. And it just kind of reminds me of like not only leading by example, but also just, you know, using best practices when you're out enjoying um, these sorts of things and that you might have a friend that's either new to the sport or new to um, or maybe just hasn't done it in a while and if you're trying to make an effort to do what's right and not spread these you're you're helping others know that as well so that's yeah, yeah absolutely yeah i would say if uh, i would challenge the people listening that if you knew already knew some of these make sure someone else knows 
And so, and if you didn't know, if you learned something, still make sure someone else knows. And so, uh, it'd be awesome. I like that. Yeah. But thank you for taking yeah. time and chatting with us. Thank you for uh, having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down!